The reading this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, and that can be found on page 1180 in the Blue Church Bibles. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. be great for you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, please, if you're looking at one of the church Bibles. And let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. We ask for your help now, Lord, as we pick up the thread and momentum of our series in Philippians. We pray that your spirit would open your word to us in this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Before I started church work, um, I was a graduate management trainee in a big media corporation. Uh, that sounds a bit grand. Actually, the big media corporation collapsed in one of the biggest um, uh, corporate scandals uh, in British corporate history, though I think my two years with them didn't contribute a huge amount to the scandal. <laughs> Um, but as one of the things they did with us as a group of uh, new graduate trainees, we went on uh, a kind of training week full of, sort of different exercises, uh, many of them outdoors, uh, in the Lake District, uh, next to Lake Windermere. And it was uh, a load of fun, and it involved a number of different things. We had to build rafts at one point. Um, another point I seem to remember trying to put up uh, tents in a 
storm um, in a slate quarry at uh, midnight, and that all being very grim, and then an incredibly long walk that people seem to find, well, we all will find quite difficult walking up a gully, doing it, which was its own extraordinary thing as well, going through the water and over the rocks and all, all this sort of thing. Anyway, one of the exercises that we did in a kind of debrief of it afterwards in our different teams was that uh, each of us in that little group, probably six of us in turn, um, had to stand in the, the middle of the carpet and then describe how the other members of the group had been for them during the exercise. Um, and it was done in a simple sort of a way. And the facilitator said, if you're here, I want you to put the other members of the group as close to you on the carpet as you felt during the exercise. And so we were put in varying degrees of proximity. I remember one uh, woman, Donna, I remember her being here. And for some reason, I think I'd kind of walked alongside her at a difficult part in the exercise, so she put me here. And there was another bloke, his name I've forgotten now, it's probably just as well, she put right over there by the wall. He was incredibly annoyed. <laughs> I want to begin this morning by asking you to do that exercise in your mind in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the degree of proximity? Given where you are at right now, this morning. Not where you were a year ago, not where you were six years ago, not even where you were six days ago, but this morning. What is the degree of proximity? I was helped to become a Christian through a set of summer camps and other conferences and the programme for the talks always followed the same sort of format and it was a very good format. And at some point, usually I think quite early on, there would be a talk that was entitled Christianity is Christ. And it was very important for a load of kids coming from quasi-religious backgrounds of different kinds to hear that Christianity is Christ. Knowing Jesus. And that's the great message of our passage this morning. That Christianity is knowing Christ. And that there's more of Christ for us to know. As we work through it, I've divided it into three sections. What knowing Christ is based on, what knowing Christ looks like, and how knowing Christ grows. Let's try and recall where we are in Philippians and understand how it fits into the overall message of the letter. The church in Philippi essentially has two particular issues. There's internal disunity... And then there is a sense of threat from the outside. And the threat from the outside seems to come from two sources. Um, one of them is the prevailing pagan culture, which didn't like Christian behaviour and Christian conviction. And the other, which we've discovered more this morning, comes from within uh, the, a group of people who were trying to make the church more Jewish again. 
And in the face of these different threats, internal and external, Paul was called, uh, was, was inclined and, and wanted to draw them back together in belief and behavior that in chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. And to show them what that kind of behavior should be and should look like in chapter 2, he uses some great examples. He uses the supreme example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he describes in that amazing hymn, as people call it, Christ's descent from heaven to become a man, to become one of us, in deep humility, becoming a servant and becoming a sacrifice, and then being exalted. And as we gazed on that and were dazed by his love, we hear Paul saying, and you do the same as he lives within you. And having worked out a little bit of the implications of that in the middle of chapter 2, he then moves on to talk about some of his own arrangements and travel plans and relationship with them and comings and goings with different members of his team, Timothy and Epaphroditus. But it all builds into the same argument because the way Timothy and Epaphroditus are both presented is as people who show what it is like to live out conduct worthy of the gospel in their lives. And at the end of chapter 2, I think we have a strong sense of the sacrifice that Christ's sacrifice calls for. The sacrifice in us. The death of our selfish ego. The looking out for others. The prioritising of the gospel. And it's quite sobering to have that held up and be told, you do that too as Christ lives from within you. And I think in chapter 3, there's... um, Almost a little balancing, if you like, or, or something that's, that has a slightly different flavour to it, while making essentially the same point. What he does is very much to talk about himself as a kind of example now. An example, certainly, of someone who lives out the gospel and sacrifices themselves for others. But actually, even before he gets to that, of someone who has just come to know Jesus. And just how wonderful that is. Just how glorious it is and all the great implications of it. And so as he continues to prod away at the need for unity in the church and gospel-worthy conduct in the church, he shows the heart of the person who can do that. And it is a heart that knows Christ and prizes him above all things. Knowing Christ... Let's see what it's based on in verses 1 to 9. And uh, I've tried to use two words to describe that, recalculating and receiving. He starts then, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. A big theme all the way through Philippians that she recaps, brings in again. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And actually, it's a safeguard. He needs to repeat himself a little bit because there's some dangers out there. And he describes the danger Uh, There in verse 2. Watch out for those dogs. Now, if someone said to me, watch out for those dogs, I'd say, oh, great. Um, You know, can I I meet them and are they friendly? What he's doing, though, is using a kind of code, and it's quite subtle. Because in the Jewish mind, the dogs were the unbelievers. That was their kind of code for people who were not Jewish believers. They were dogs. 
So that's, that's the, the, the code background of what he's saying. And he's very negative about them. Those evildoers, people who don't do good. People who mutilate the flesh. It gets more and more alarming, doesn't it? And what he's doing is saying, he's using this set of codes to say that there are people who come from a Judaizing Jewish sort of background who will be trying to persuade you to go back or to enter the kind of old covenant way of doing things, particularly characterized by the law and by physical things like circumcision and food laws and so on. And they will say, just believing in Jesus in the new covenant is not enough. You need all these old covenant things as well, particularly connected with the law and with doing uh, things in obedience. And he makes a big claim in verse 3. He says, actually, we're the real fulfillment of that Old Testament people who were circumcised. We do the real service. We have the Spirit. And it's those who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in those kind of physical things, circumcision, food laws, obedience, and all the rest of it. Now, he's making a point about those who will threaten the church. And then he makes it highly autobiographical and personal in one of the most amazing bits of revelation about himself that we find in the New Testament. And he says, I know because I've been there. And I know it doesn't work. If anyone could expect to be right with God by all that obedience, it would be me. He's Lenny in the puppet show. Plus, 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 plus. That's the kind of New Testament 21st century church equivalent, perhaps. He's got so many reasons that he could chalk up this list of good things. If someone else thinks they've reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised and on the right day. I'm a real Israelite. I've got the DNA. I'm not a mudblood or a dog. I'm in a very good tribe, which did very good things. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I came across an interesting interpretation of this recently, and I'm going to target it at about 12 people here, and it may be completely unfair. It may be that he's saying here, I speak really good Hebrew. (laughs) I can be really proud. I can read the Old Testament in the original. Just for a few of you, that may be a reason for confidence in the flesh. It isn't for me, my Hebrew's lousy. Um, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, keeping the law, going beyond the law. As regard for zeal, he was so keen, he summed up for all the writers. Persecuting the church. And now we start to see where that kind of legalistic fanaticism leads someone. Where rules... And ideas become more important than the gospel, and we end up persecuting true believers. As for righteousness, the external righteousness that you can tick the boxes on, then I'm faultless. So he's setting it up. It's important to see that. And says, from the inside, I know that it is impossible to get right with God and to be perfect before God in your own fleshly effort. And that has led him to this massive recalculation exercise, verse 7. 
Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's chalked it up and he's just changed the valuation he puts on all of that. Now, I don't think he's trashing his background and all sorts of things that were very helpful for him from that background. But he's trashing his background in his own calculation spreadsheet in as much as it gave him a false confidence in himself. And this is part of becoming a Christian. There is a recalculation exercise that we do with all the things of natural advantage or personal achievement or association that could, we think, in our own minds, seek to justify us in God's sight. And we all have them. I wonder what it is for you. Religious background and associations, perhaps. Just being part of a family that goes to church. The kinds of moral living and behaviour that you feel particularly proud of yourself and you think, well, actually, I'm, much, I'm better than other people in this respect. Whatever it is that you go to to reassure yourself that you're an okay person and that you don't need forgiveness, it's those things that need recalculating and reseeing. And the language here is just so powerful. And these, this is a wonderful passage. I almost, I'd just like to read it, read it over and over and over with you because I think the, the flow of it twice is just, uh, has such a, a sort of impetus uh, in it. What is more, I consider everything a loss. And here he extends it right out. And he says, everything I have or could possibly have in this world just goes into the debit column, into the loss column, into the red, in the way I value it, because knowing Christ is worth infinitely more. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Whatever we have, Christ is better. Whatever we don't have, Christ is better than getting it. He really is that great. If you have nothing but have Jesus, you have infinitely more than the person who has just all the best things of this life, including a good moral life, and doesn't have Jesus. You have infinitely more. And of course, in order to become a Christian, one has to renounce everything else. And we just say, Jesus has to come first. It doesn't mean we live a life in which other people don't matter. It doesn't mean we live a life with no possessions. But there is an exercise in saying, no, Jesus is going to come first. And at the point where there is a choice, he trumps every other call and consideration. And it's not just because that is a kind of command we have to obey. Or an example that we have to follow. This is where chapter 3, I think, adds something to chapter 2. I I preached on these two chapters for a a group of missionaries, mission workers and 
September and applied it very much to the kind of sacrifice that's involved for all those people. And chapter two was sobering. And those guys knew what I was talking about. I don't know it yet, but they knew. They knew what I was talking about in terms of the sacrifice of following the example of Christ. And it was a relief that afternoon to get into chapter three and say, yes, there is this great sacrifice there. But it's not just obeying a command. It's worth it because in it you find Christ. And knowing Christ trumps everything. He's that beautiful. He's that wonderful. He's that desirable. He is that satisfying. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things things can he, he uses the strong language in this passage i consider them garbage garbage is the kind of thing i have to pick up when i take my dog for a walk again there's this relativization of everything else in order to get more of christ it's a beautiful picture to be found in him the picture is just being safe somewhere christ was being pictured like a, a kind of well-fortified castle a place of safety And then a great theological statement, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law. That was what he couldn't um, achieve for himself. And he knew that from the inside. But that which is through faith in Christ, the pure gift of the righteousness that comes from the outside. We recalculate, we open ourselves to receive from Christ a righteousness that far surpasses anything we could gain for ourselves and is all that we need to be right with God. And he explains it a little. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Let's think for a moment about this and about your life and your attitude to your own achievements, your own background. The things that you turn to to reassure yourself that you're right with God. The things that you use to to bolster and stroke your own ego like that. And hear this, it is this righteousness of Jesus Christ which comes as a gift, which is the only thing that will survive the judgment of God which we must all face. In the judgment of God, all other confidences will fail. Every substitute will be burnt up. Our own morality will be shown to be selective. Our self-righteousness will be shown to be a sham. Our little superstitions will be shown to be empty. Our alternative religions will be revealed in all their inadequacy. But in Christ, we can be safe. And in Christ, we will be saved. And in Christ, we have the supreme joy. Have you made that move that Grandma was trying to encourage Lenny to make? It's very much like the move that I made. I needed to do it. Turning away from self-righteousness, turning to Christ's righteousness. And if you've made that move many times, do you need to be reminded this morning that your standing before God is simply based on Christ. That comes as a challenge to the complacent and the self-righteous. It comes as a great comfort to those who feel that they are unrighteous and conflicted, and unworthy, and maybe dishonoured, and dishonourable in some way. But it's about his righteousness, not yours. You're safe in him. And in his righteousness, you find a love that is the supreme love of the universe. 
recalculating and receiving. And then we see in a marvellous compressed little cameo what it looks like. Although what Paul does is to describe it in first person terms as his aspiration. I want to know Christ. Isn't that the echo of your heart? Isn't that the word that the Holy Spirit releases in your heart? Just those words. I want to know Christ. His righteousness and his beauty, his tenderness and his commitment. What does knowing Christ look like? Yes, Paul says, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And in that second part, picking up from chapter 2. What does knowing Jesus like? It looks like power and pain. It looks like him living out within us those two twin poles of his own life, crucifixion and resurrection. And they're both present. Thank God. And this gives us a frame and a structure for understanding our lives as Christians. And if we start with the second, we see that, yes, there is pain there. Knowing Christ means participation in his sufferings. Not that we get nailed to a cross to die for the sins of the world, that bit of it's been done. But the principle of self-denial, of making his priorities our priorities. And of facing, quite possibly, the persecution of a hostile world. It gives us a frame for understanding the pains of our lives, that they are a part of knowing Christ. Now, if we just had that, it would be like a a sort of sermon you could preach on chapter 2, which only talked about pain and only talked about obedience and only talked about this sort of um, embrace of of self-denial. And the Christian church has sometimes done that. And it's not been helpful because it's been imbalanced. Living out a relationship, being united with Christ, being found in him, is not just about the pain that it involves. It's about the power of his resurrection. He does not call us to do it in terms of mere imitation. There is a power of the risen Lord which is at work in us through his spirit. And I I see it in, in all of you so much. I see it in my own life. How could we possibly keep going? How could we grow in Christ? How could we face the things that we face without giving up and cursing God? That power is living and at work. This is what it looks like. Lay that along your your life at the moment. It gives an explanation for the pain. It gives an encouragement for the difficulties that pain causes you. This is all part of knowing Christ. And if we weren't limited to trying to finish Philippians by the end of January, I would probably uh, have uh, chosen to take uh, verses 12 to 14 in a separate sermon. But we're going to do them this morning as well. In verse 11, he says, so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And his point there is not that um, he, he doesn't, he's not sure whether he's going to be raised from the dead or not. He's just he doesn't know quite what the means is. 
quite what the different pathways of power and pain are going to be on the way. He knows they're going to be pathways of power and pain, but what particularly they are is not clear to him. But the goal is clear, that he himself will be resurrected, and that is our goal as well. And then in this just remarkable passage, I think so helpful for us at the beginning of the year, so helpful for us in terms of the changes in our church over this next year, he says, not that I have already obtained all this. I haven't got there already, but I press on. How do we grow in knowing Christ? We grow in knowing Christ by being future-focused and pressing on into that future. We've not got there. I press on, he says. I, I think as he writes this, he wants us to read it and for his words to be our words. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Did you know that Christ has taken hold of your life? When you became a Christian, it wasn't you um, just taking hold of him. He was taking hold of you. His hand is still on your life. And he addresses them in this personal way, brothers and sisters. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. What is he saying? He's saying there is more coming. I've not got there. And then he speaks of focus. One thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. This is so important. Of course, it doesn't mean to say he completely wiped his memory backs about the past. He refers to it sometimes. He mustn't absolutize it in a kind of wooden way. But there is a kind of dwelling on the past, both negatively and positively, that holds us back in the Christian life. And Paul won't do that. He doesn't want to do that. He is future-focused, not past-focused. I remember that um, the headmaster of my uh, dad's school was someone who, in retirement, lived in Cambridge. And he was a very old man. He was in his 90s. He'd been headmaster of this school, and then he'd gone to be the first chancellor, first vice chancellor of Nottingham University when it first got its charter and was being set up. And they named a library after him, the Bertie Halwood Library. And then he, he, he came to Cambridge in his 90s, lived to 101. I visited him a couple of times. And one of the things that's very interesting about Bertie Halwood was. He was so future-focused. So he told us, and I think he must have been about 98 at this point, that he'd just written a letter to the current vice-chancellor of Nottingham University about the car parking arrangements or, or, or some development on the university campus because he was concerned that the, the campus should go on developing in the best possible way. I mean, I dare say he was a bit of a pain for the new vice-chancellor. But it was very striking. There was no kind of, oh, Norman, that's my dad's name. You know, do you remember what it was like in Bristol in the 1940s? It was, no, I'm concerned about what it's going to be like in Nottingham in the 2000s. And I just put it to you, especially perhaps those of you who are a bit older. Are you brooding on the past? Are you thinking of the past as a golden era or as a difficult era, but you're too focused on it? For all of us, are we perhaps remembering times in the Christian life that were better and just thinking nostalgically back to them and not focusing on the future? Paul's example is that as we press on in Christ, we should be looking at that future, not at the past. 
And dare I say it, I think this is going to be very important for you as a church through this next year. There is perhaps a danger that in retrospect, to some degree, you will start to idealise and romanticise at least some aspects of me and my ministry here. That will be more of a temptation for some than others. For some, it's going to be no temptation at all, I'm sure. Um, but it, it is what happens, and it will, it, it will be what would happen with me if I was out there and it was someone else up there. There will be a danger. Don't do that. Don't do that. It doesn't serve me at all. It doesn't serve Christ. Even now, you should be future-focused and realise that for you as a church, there is a future in Christ which is great and glorious and worth seizing and moving into. Yes, it's uncertain. You don't know who the new senior pastor will be. And when you do, you don't know quite what the impact of such a person will be. There will be change, inevitably. There must be change. God wants there to be change. Even if I was not going, God would want there to be change. But because I'm going, there will almost certainly be even more change. Some of you are scared about that. Some of you will be resistant to that. Some of you will be tempted to say, oh, well, Julian did this, or Julian said that, and we can't change it, or we don't want to change it, because it would be different. I urge you, in the transition that's going to happen over the next year, hopefully, be future-focused. Put your trust in Christ and seek for more of him and press on into that future together. This is certainly something that Debbie and I are going to have to do. We can't just look back on a time here and nostalgically hold it in our minds. We have to press on too. There are big changes for us. And one of the things that's been really helpful for me in contemplating what is a pretty mammoth set of changes for us is that God's promise to us is that there is more of Christ for us in it. One of our mission partners said that to me quite early on when we told them about possibly going to Madagascar. She said, you know, you'll get to know Jesus better. But that's not just for us. That's for you too. And of course, the goal is not just um, growth in this life. There is this great movement towards the heavenly goal, which is the point. Forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. The next step that Christ wants to lead you into is not the next step on the fulfilment of an earthly life and a kind of earthly dream. It's the next step on your progress into glory, to heaven. And what that means more than anything else is becoming more like Jesus, getting more and more ready when you see him to, to look him in the face and to have that thought that, that you will meet him one day. And within broader structures of grace, you will have to give an account for your life. And within broader structures of grace, do you want to be saying to him, in terms of the illustration I used at the, at the, at the beginning, well, actually, Lord Jesus, I'm terribly sorry you were right on the edge of the carpet. I'd like to put that right now. I don't think so. Draw near to him. Seek him now. 
Put him first now, entrust yourself to him now for that next stage of being taken into glory where you will meet him. And then, oddly enough, all the other things in your life will come into different sorts of focus and one way or another they will all sort themselves out. So where is he this morning? Has he, even as we've looked at these words, have you sensed him coming closer and saying, I want you to invite me to be closer. I want you to, be, I, 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 I want you to make me more central in your vision. Is he saying, I, I have specific things I want you to work on? I was quite struck when Mike was sharing about praying for people. Is that not something many of us might just be asking, that the Lord might be asking us to move into as part of this pressing on? I was struck because it was almost, I've kind of almost forgotten this, it was almost 40 years ago when I was an undergraduate. I had, it wasn't someone from the front who said you should pray for two people every day for two minutes. It, it was something the kind of Lord did in, in a way, and he, actually it was three people. And, and it just came to me as Mike was speaking, there were these three people, I think it was the beginning of 1983. He said pray for them every day. Um, within, within 18 months, one of them had been baptised and two of them had made professions of faith. Um, two of them have gone on pretty strong ever since. One of them has wandered around a bit, but an email recently said that, that actually, having had 10 years of atheism, he's come back to the Lord. Um, you know, my, my prayers were ever so weak. It was less than two minutes. I mean, three people I did in about 10 seconds every day. Um, I just add that in case that's something that gives you a sense of what the Lord wants to take you deeper into. But it may be many, many other things as well. But know this, whatever the sacrifice, he is worth it in this life and beyond. Knowing Jesus really is the best. Let's pray together and then we'll gather around the Lord's table. How wonderful you are, Lord Jesus. And we say with Paul, we want to know you. And we want to know you better and press forward into what you have for us. That there may be more of Christ in our lives. For your name's sake. Amen.